We drove about two and a half hours. There was a lot of traffic and we were so nervous. I actually drove by the building and had to go back to look for it again. In August, 2021, Jamie Davis Smith enrolled two of her kids, a six-year-old son and 10-year-old daughter, in a study to test the safety of the COVID vaccine for children. And she didn't miss the turn because she was nervous about her kids getting the shots. She was worried about the opposite. Even though they were accepted into the study, the study site was very clear that the kids had to be healthy enough to participate. Their COVID test had to come back negative, which I was pretty sure it would, but you never know with COVID. Um, so I was nervous about that, that something would go wrong and, and they wouldn't be able to get vaccinated that day. Mm-hmm. It was a very long appointment. They were examined head to toe. They had blood taken. They were tested for COVID. Um, there was a long wait to defrost the vaccine. That that alone took about 45 minutes. And I'm actually tearing up a little now, but when I saw the nurse come in with the vials, I started crying and I tried really hard to hide that from my kids, even though I warned them I might be crying from happiness. But I just had so much relief and so much gratitude that they would be protected and that we were taking this huge step, um, not just for my kids to return to normal and to stay healthy, hopefully, but as, as a society that we had this chance, we were so lucky to be able to help other kids too and get them closer to living a more normal pre-pandemic life. Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about I think that. you need to come over, stand in my to shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, taking risks. We're constantly deciding how much risk we're comfortable with, whether to put on a seatbelt or have your kid wear a bike helmet, or squeeze in one more errand that could make you late for an important appointment, or spend a little more money than you can afford. But the pandemic has forced us to make calculations about risk in ways that feel new and urgent. You or someone you love could literally die from the choice you make to attend a large indoor event or forego a vaccine. But it might also turn out just fine. So we've all been left trying to figure out how much risk we can live with and how much of a threat we think COVID-19 poses for us and our families. To start the conversation today, we wanted to hear from someone taking a risk some parents consider unfathomable. So back to Jamie Davis-Smith in Washington, D.C. She has four kids. Her two teenagers got the vaccine as soon as it was available. That left her youngest, who were six and 10. I first started thinking about enrolling my kids in a vaccine trial almost as soon as the vaccine became widely available for adults. Millions of adults around the world had gotten vaccinated, including myself and my husband and lots and lots of people that I know. Um, I really didn't have any doubts that it was safe and effective. And so I did a lot of research. I got them on tons of lists um, because demand was so high. There were thousands of parents like me across the country who felt the exact same way. And so I decided I'd be comfortable with driving up to four hours if I had to, to get them to a vaccine site. And eventually all of my persistence paid off and they were both admitted to a trial. And in Help me understand a little bit more why you were so willing even to drive for hours, if if that was your only option, to get them into a trial to get this vaccine early when, you know, the chances were pretty good that six to eight months from then, everybody, all kids, you know, their age would be able to get them. Yeah, well, six to eight months is a long time, especially in a child's life, especially when they're being kept out of school and my family in particular was being more cautious than most families that I know, at least. Um, And that is in large part because of my older daughter's health issues and her vulnerabilities. She would be at very high risk of complications and death if she were to get COVID. And so if I could get my kids and their sister protected sooner, I definitely wanted to do that. 
Um, for my particular kids too, the way the timing worked out, they did get their first dose of the vaccine before school started. I felt a lot better sending them back to school, knowing that they had that protection. You know, kids are a lot less likely to get sick, seriously sick from COVID-19. And, and you could make the argument that I mean, a lot of people who are enrolling aren't going to necessarily personally benefit so much as kind of benefit the greater good, you know, in their participation. So lots of other kids can get access to the vaccine. But for you, it was there was a direct family benefit here. Absolutely. And I do know, obviously, that kids are less likely to get seriously ill than adults. But I also read the news, like everybody else, that kids were getting very sick. Some kids were dying. And as somebody who does have a medically complex child, I've been in children's hospital for weeks on end with a very sick child sitting at their bedside. And if I had any chance of avoiding that for my kids, of course, I was going to take it. That's my number one job as their mother, to keep them safe. Did it feel like a risky choice to you at all? I knew there was a risk um, in getting them vaccinated, but for my particular kids, they were not enrolled in the first arm of the trial where I think there was maybe more risk. But by the time my kids were enrolled in the trial, um, the vaccine had already been administered to a very large number of children. And so I took great comfort in that. Um, I also checked with my children's pediatrician. Um, I talked to other doctors that I know, other people who work in the medical field, and they all said they would jump at the chance if they could to get their kids vaccinated. Um, I also talked to my kids about any risk um, that we that this wasn't approved for their age. Um, I did tell them that they might have a sore arm, that there might be some other side effects that we don't know about. Um, but I did tell them it would bring them a step closer to being able to see their friends again, participate in all the activities they like. I also told them that the study was necessary to approve the vaccine for kids like them all around the world. And to their credit, they they were really happy about that. I also promised them lots of screen time and ice cream in case they didn't feel well. They, they, I definitely got their consent um, to participate. Have you ever enrolled your kids in a medical study before this? No, um, I... Honestly, before COVID, never even considered it. I don't think I would have enrolled my children in a study, but I, through this process, I learned a lot more about how studies work. And so I, I don't know that I would necessarily enroll them in a study in the future, but, um, but I think I would definitely be more open to considering it. How much of a, an appetite for risk would you say you have generally? when it comes to your kids? Generally pretty low. My kids think I am overprotective. Um, but but just seeing how much they miss now, I think I have recalibrated my risk because there are risks to not letting them do things as well. Going to school is is the big one. Um, I now think it, you know, it's it's worth the risk. They need to be in school. They need to be with peers. They need to be getting live instruction, um, but even participating in sports, things like that. I'm not as risk adverse as I was before the pandemic. Hmm. You think you'll you think some of that'll carry on after related to non-pandemic choices? Like, you know, if your daughter wants to get a piercing that you would have said no to, or, or if you're if she wants to go to a sleepover that you normally would have been like, no. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because my daughter did just ask for a second ear piercing. And I don't know that I would have said yes before, but I actually did say Yes. You know, I had, again, this talk with her similar in a way that she had to take this responsibility for taking care of it herself. And there was a risk it could get infected, all of these things. Um, but I did feel like she you know, let her enjoy herself. She's had such a hard time. We really never know when life will be disrupted again. And so I have lightened up, I feel like, in a, in a lot of ways. And I do think that will carry past the pandemic. Her kids, by the way, did just fine with both doses of the vaccine. 
Ten-year-old Sarah had a brief headache after the second dose. Six-year-old Adam got a splotchy rash that worried his mom a bit. But Jamie called the clinic and found out it was a pretty common side effect, and it was gone after a few days. At first, it seemed strange to us that a parent so cautious about her kid's health would enroll them in an experimental vaccine trial. But she's not alone in that. Maybe I'm categorized as like a helicopter, not necessarily a helicopter mom, but my kids don't cross the street without us there. You know, we hold hands in the parking lot. Yeah, I'm a sort of cautious parent in that regard. Um, You know, their safety is paramount to me. This is Seema Lakdawala. Her daughters are five and eight. Her oldest participated in the COVID vaccine trial. To me, the riskier option is to leave these kids unvaccinated. My risk calculation is perhaps different than others because I know the risk of how viruses transmit. I understand that process in a way that I think very few others do. Um, I also understand the risk of the virus versus vaccination. Lactawella is a microbiologist at the University of Pittsburgh, and her lab actually studies how viruses spread through the air. And so we were definitely a cautious household. We did not see other people for a while, but a partner and I both Uh, worked from home. Uh, The kids were doing virtual school. And I think that this, again, speaks to what I thought was being risky. To me, risky behavior was, you know, engaging in and being in spaces where transmission and the spread of the virus could occur that could uh, either infect my kids or me or my husband. To me, the vaccine was our way out. Thanks to Seema Lakdawala and Jamie Davis-Smith for sharing their perspectives. It is a matter of perspective. A risk is something that exposes you to danger, harm, or loss. But what you and I consider dangerous may differ. That's something our next guest learned when she found herself plastered all over the national news as America's worst mom. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. It's Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today, taking risks. What could be riskier than signing your child up as a guinea pig for a new vaccine? But we just heard from two moms who enrolled their kids in COVID-19 vaccine trials because, to them, leaving their kids unvaccinated any longer than necessary felt like the bigger risk. On the other hand, many perfectly reasonable parents who also love their children have come to the opposite conclusion. Later in the show, we'll talk to an expert about why people perceive risk so differently. But first, let's explore the idea of risk a little deeper in the context of other parenting choices. Those decisions, after all, can be fraught with such intense emotions and judgment. Here is a mom who learned all of this very publicly. So I'm Lenore Skenazy. I am the founder of the Free Range Kids Movement. And now I'm the president of Let Grow, which is a nonprofit that promotes childhood independence. I know you've told this story many, many, (laughs) many, many times, but would you tell it to us now about how you became the poster mom of free range parenting? Sure. Uh, A zillion years ago, Uh, literally zillion, Uh, our nine-year-old son started asking me and my husband if we would take him someplace he'd never been before here in New York City, where we live, and let him find his own way home on the subway. This was his dearest desire. He kept pestering us. Finally, we decided, yeah, uh, we would do this. We we trusted him. We trust our city. Um, We're on the subway all the time. We don't have a car. So um, one sunny Sunday, I took him to Bloomingdale's, which is such a fancy department store that neither (laughs) he had never been there and I'm rarely there and I left him in the handbag department he took the subway home he came into our apartment levitating with pride and excitement and I'm a newspaper columnist so what could I do I wrote about it why I let my nine-year-old ride the subway alone and two days later I was on the Today Show MSNBC Fox News and NPR (laughs) so it was sort of an across the board fascination with why would any mom let her kid do anything on his own. And that's how I got to be known as America's worst mom. (laughs) Okay, it wasn't actually a zillion years ago. It was 2008, but she really did get called America's worst mom. And the reaction shocked her because 
she thought she was doing exactly what a good mom should do. He was excited about doing something that he felt he was ready for. And then it was our job as parents to think, do we think he's ready for it? And we have an older kid who had never asked us. He was 11 and hadn't taken the subway by himself. So we had to calculate what we thought made sense. And we decided, you know, we're on the subway all the time. Six million people take it every day. It's it's crowded, but it's not dangerous. And he knows his way and he can read a map and he can speak the language. And we gave him extra money if he needed a cab and quarters because wait, it's so long ago, there were still some working payphones um, hither and yon. And how did you decide that dropping him off in the handbag section of Bloomingdale's was <laughs> just the right amount of risk for him? Um, well, first of all, uh, the handbag department happens to be right over the subway entrance. So it was the the shortest point between store and subway. Um, but, you know, the, it's so interesting that we're even talking about this as, as framing it in terms of risk, because I think if we take a step back, that's really what's changed the most since I was a kid, which is that when my mom was letting me walk to school, which is long enough ago, I mean, the, the, first of all, the nine-year-old who took the subway is now 23. <laughs> so that's been a long time already. But then go back to my childhood when my mom let me walk to school by myself at age five to kindergarten, as did all the other moms in Wilmette, Illinois, uh, where I grew up, uh, just a plain old suburb of Chicago. Um, it wasn't ever framed as risk reward. Uh, risk was not a big thought. <laughs> you know, not everything had to be calculated back then. I think that's the newest thing. I mean, really, when I was on all these shows talking about why would you let your kid go? What if, so, you know, what if he never came home? My mom wasn't thinking, what if Lenore never came home before she let me walk to school? Because there were some things that were so normal, so anodyne, so every day that you didn't think of them in terms of risk, just like today, you get in the car and you drive to the store, you drive your kid to drop them off. You're not always thinking, what is the risk? You know, what if I get T-boned? What if there's a drunk driver? You know, what if somebody's speeding? What if my brakes fail? You, the, the same way we don't go through all the, the worst case scenarios before we drive, we didn't used to go through the worst case scenarios and every time we took our eyes off our kids and now we do. Why do you think that is? What's changed? Yeah, I, I, you know, 14 years I wake up asking myself that question. And I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, one is, of course, you know, we're so much more aware of bad things that could possibly happen because the media is so omnipresent in our lives and the media needs to make money. And so they show us the stories that will get the most attention and hence the most advertising dollars because the most people are watching or listening. And that's the story of something tragic that happens to a kid, especially if it's a, a white middle-class kid and the parent thought she was okay. They're, that's like the favorite thing. They just let her child walk home from school. She just let her child wait in the car. I mean, they really, they will find the, the stories that that, that like put a needle in our spine, you know? And when you ask your brain, hey, is it safe for my kid to walk to school? Up come the worst case scenarios because they are the most easy for our brain to retrieve. They, they span 40 something years of the worst stories that have happened in America. But we think because they were so easy to retrieve, they're relevant. So my mom didn't have the internet. She didn't even have cable when I was growing up. So she wasn't populating her brain with these horrible stories every time she thought, hmm, I wonder if my kid can walk to school. It was just, everyone's walking to school. That seems fine. Um, that, that's one of the reasons I think we, we do these calculations. Um, there are some other reasons, I think. And one is, is sort of almost spiritual, which is we really think we have a lot of control over our lives because we do, you know, I mean, to the point where you could warm your seat in a car and not my seat in a car, right? So when you feel like you can control almost everything, it starts seeming like if anything goes wrong, it's because you didn't exert enough control. So the idea that bad things happen to good people is like, uh-uh, no, it doesn't. If you were paying more attention, if you were a better parent, if you thought more, harder about these worst case scenarios and prevented everything from ever happening, and you thought to that worst case scenario first before you decided my kid can wait in the car or walk to school, nothing bad would ever happen. So we've lost any kind of sympathy for the fact that, you know, whether it's the Lord or fate, something works in mysterious ways and we aren't in control. When you think you're in control, you're actually more nervous because everything is up to you. We should define what free range actually means oh, to you. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, that's good because I sometimes Google free range and it appalls me what I see. Um, 
free range kids is an old fashioned idea of child rearing, which is that our kids are smarter and safer than our current culture gives them credit for. So we can give them some independence and some responsibility, both of which have been waning in that parents now are with their kids a lot. They drive their kids a lot of places that the kids could get to by, by foot or by bike. They, they watch over things. They're almost required to, I mean, pre COVID, you know, parents have to go to the school all the time for read alouds and publishing parties and, and other parties. It's just, it's almost like the kids became Velcroed to their parents. So free range is unvelcroing them. It's not saying, I don't care if you do your homework. It's not saying, I don't care if you run in the street at 3 a.m. It's, it's, um, it's responsibility and some independence combined, both of which are in short measure today. But um, it's always a calculation. And if your kid disappoints you or turns out to be um, irresponsible, then you can take some of that freedom away until they until they prove themselves anew. But but what it what's what's different from today is there's almost no way for kids to prove that they're ready to be unsupervised at any point because they're never unsupervised. You're always with them at the soccer game or you're trailing them or tracking them by phone or you're there picking them up and taking them someplace new. So I really feel like, let me ask you this, okay, Julie, tell me, uh, think back to something that you just loved doing as a kid, okay? I'll give you a second or two. Think back to something that really, you know, you were happy when you were doing that, or it was really exciting or really fun. Can you think of something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you, I'm not even going to ask you what it was, but I'm going to ask you this question. Was your mom with you? <laughs> no, 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 no. Nobody ever says, oh yeah, she was right there. She was helping us build that fort. You know, she helped me, boosted me into the tree. And then yeah. she kept calling directions from down below and urging me to be careful and watch out for that branch. Nobody <laughs> remembers their happiest childhood memories. They loved their parents and they loved time with their parents. But what they really appreciated was becoming part of the world. Um, so, so so to that point then, do you think that requiring students to wear a mask at school runs counter to the fundamentals of free-range parenting? No. Um, I actually don't think anything about masks on or off has anything to do with free-ranging because really what we're talking about is when I talk about free-ranging, I'm talking about kids gradually becoming independent. That has nothing to do with germs, right? That has to do with activities. So I'd say free range during COVID, letting kids walk outside, play, um, take some time off from school and, you know, figure out stuff on their own from YouTube, all the stuff that has to do with kids doing things. What I'm talking about is independence as opposed to precautions. Hmm. For instance, riding a car, I would always recommend um, seatbelts, that's not a free range decision that has nothing to do with you making something out of your life. You've worked to pass laws in some states that protect parents. Um, yeah. Uh, if they let their kids have some free range, like to go to the park alone, say, at the end of the block. Mm-hmm. Um, and the laws are there to, to what? To protect parents from getting arrested or getting reported to Child Protective Services. Why has that been important to you? Because when parents know that their kids are ready to do something like go to the block, you know, go to the end of the block to play at the park or stay home alone while mom picks up dad from the, you know, the the, the train or whatever, uh, it should be a parenting decision and not a decision that gets second guessed by the state. The state is allowed in only when a parent is literally putting their child in danger and I think we all, you know, I think it's pretty clear that a three-year-old playing outside in the dark is in danger. Whereas if I think my seven-year-old is ready to stay home alone, and maybe I'm working two jobs, right? A lot of poor people don't have constant money for constant childcare. And so if I think my kid can come home with a latch key and get herself a snack and watch TV or scroll through TikTok and do her homework for two hours before I get back from my second job, that should be up to me and not the state. And I don't have to second guess what if somebody else with a, you know, an inflated sense of danger, we were talking earlier about the, you know, the, the ease with which we can remember and think of horrible scenarios, even if they're very rare. Well, just because rare things sometimes happen doesn't mean that I, um, I'm not allowed to trust the odds and trust my parenting and trust my kid and trust my neighborhood. Just like, I'm allowed to have stairs at home, <laughs> you know? Sometimes kids fall down the stairs. I'm allowed to feed my kids solid food, <laughs> even though sometimes kids may choke. You're allowed to make decisions that are the best for your kids and, and 
and you, the parent, know your kid the best. That's that's very important to me because otherwise there's no freedom for children or for parents. I, I think a, a lot of parents have struggled with um, trying to put in context rare bad things that might happen during the yes. pandemic, right? Because oh, I think that they're struggling always to put in context rare, rare dangers. I mean, what do you think of the line... Um, you know, I just couldn't live with myself if if something terrible happened. And right. then parents shutting down and, and not allowing their kids to... I mean, I talked to a parent who um, wasn't allowing his kid to walk a couple of blocks in the suburbs because he was so afraid of, like, not that something bad would happen, but if, God forbid, the one in a zillion chances it did, he would feel so guilty that he just decided, forget it, I'm not going to let her walk. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's the same kind of uh, urge that a lot of parents are feeling, um, even if they don't want to be feeling it during the Mm -hmm. pandemic, because, you know, what if my kid is the one that gets, has to end up on a ventilator, even though that's very rare, right? I mean, Mm -hmm, what what mm -hmm. parent could could live with that? And and so, Mm -hmm. so... So even though, you know, we may know that it's a rare risk, if you have the ability not to take that risk, it feels like you're obligated not to take it. Yeah. I mean, really, when I when I talked to that dad who wouldn't let his kid walk a couple blocks, it was it was as much about fear of almost not only blame from the world, but self-blame. He really thought he couldn't live with himself. And that's where I get back a little bit to we were talking originally about you know, what are parents scared of? And and I think the reason that parents are really scared is because there's this false idea that you do have control, that if you do everything right, your kid won't get sick. And if you, and if your kid does get sick, you obviously are to blame. There's, there's no sense of forces beyond our control. And I think that's driving parents crazy. I mean, I think that's why no kids are walking to school. I think that's why, you know, parents have had such a hard time during COVID and really during during any time of child rearing in the last 20 years, because the sympathy and the empathy are missing. And that makes it more scary to be a parent, because once again, it's the, if you were a good parent, your child would be fine. Mm-hmm. And by the fact that your child is not fine proves that you are a hellish, almost demonic parent. So um, what, what can a parent do to ease back from the high alert that they've allowed themselves to get wrapped up in? Are there ways that a parent can can reorient themselves and become more comfortable allowing their child more independence? Oh, I really appreciate your asking because that is basically the big goal of Let Grow is to make it easy, normal, and legal again uh, to give your kids some independence. And it is very hard to be the only parent who, for instance, let your kid ride the subway. So um, what we highly recommend is get your school to do the Let Grow project because you will not be the only parent doing it. All these other parents and all these other kids are going to be doing it at once. So you won't feel you know crazy or lonely or judged. So um, the Let Grow project, which is free, and all the materials are on letgrow.org. And the project is this. Your, your homework assignment is to go home and do something new on your own that you've wanted to do, but for one reason or another you haven't done yet, without your parents. And of course, you sit down with your parents and you talk about it. It can be anything from sometimes kids make a scrambled egg, and you would be surprised how many seventh graders are excited to make a scrambled egg for the first time because they've never been allowed to use the stove. Some kids ride their bikes to the store, some walk to the park, some, you know, go knock on a friend's door and see if she can come out to play, as ancient as that sounds. Um, But once you see your kid do that, once your kid does go to the store and comes back with the milk or the juice or a candy bar or whatever it is, that is the only thing I've seen that changes parents Hmm. is the, the actual excitement and the joy of seeing your kid blossom on their own, doing something without you helping. It's like, do you ever watch the music man? So remember at the end, all the kids are playing their instruments so horribly and, and all the parents are going, that's my Barney. You know, it's so great. She was my Barney. Wonderful Barney. That's Eddie. That's Eddie's clarion now. Play to me, son. Play to me. So when you see your kid do something independently, it breaks this ice of fear 
that we've been talking about that has grown up in the last generation or two where letting your kid do anything seems too scary and crazy and dangerous. And then instead of feeling like you have to be with them all the time and only your presence can keep them safe, you start feeling like, wow, that's my kid growing up. Wow, I'm impressed. Or wow, that was great. Or hey, great job. Or even if it was a bad job, even if they fell or they ran part of the way home because they were scared, at least they did something on their own. And as parents, we have kids so that eventually they'll be here when we're gone. And so when you see that your kid is going to be okay doing something on their own without you, it's, it is an existential joy and it rewires your brain. Lenore Skenazy is founder of the Free Range Kids Movement. Her nonprofit is called Let Grow. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. So if learning to be more comfortable with things that feel risky is a matter of rewiring your brain, what's going on in the brain of someone taking the kinds of risks most of us would consider insane? With a free soloing, I mean, obviously the consequences are extremely high. I mean, for the most part, if I fall off, I will die. It turns out free solo climber Alex Honnold's brain is unusual. Today on Top of Mind, taking risks. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julie Rose. What was really extraordinary about Alex's brain was the fact that we kind of found nothing where we thought we should have found something. Neuroscientist Jane Joseph studies people who are serious thrill seekers, high sensation seekers, she calls them, people who abuse drugs or take really risky gambles. In 2016, she got an extraordinary opportunity to analyze Alex Honnold, the world's best free solo climber. Now, in case you didn't see the Oscar-winning documentary Free Solo, picture a wiry guy scaling a sheer granite cliff in Yosemite. It's as high as a 277-story skyscraper. And Alex Honnold is just flying up the face jamming his hands and his feet into tiny cracks as he climbs, often hanging on by just his fingertips. And he's doing it with no safety gear, no ropes, no net. If he slips, he dies. As you're watching him do this, you're probably thinking, okay, either this guy has a death wish or something is very wrong with the part of his brain that feels fear. So Dr. Joseph invited Alex Honnold to her lab at the Medical University of South Carolina, where he climbed into an fMRI scanner and watched a disturbing slideshow. Yeah, so we um, had shown Alex a bunch of images that were pretty intense. Some were very gruesome. Some were very pleasurable, but kind of sketchy. (laughs) They're very intense stimuli. And in most people, uh, the amygdala which is um, often considered the fear center of the brain, would activate intensely to many of these images. So we wanted to see, okay, well, if, as many people think, Alex doesn't show fear or experience fear, then he will basically not activate his amygdala to these images. And in fact, when he came out of the scanner, he's like, so was I supposed to be (laughs) aroused by those images? You know, he was pretty skeptical that those images would do anything, um, certainly for himself, but for other people. So this is basically what Dr. Joseph expected to find. It takes a lot to get a fear response out of the amygdala of a high sensation seeker, like somebody who solo climbs cliffs without safety gear. Alex Honnold scored off the charts. But then he took a bunch of personality tests And that's when it became clear that he's very different from most thrill seekers. What the the typical high sensation seeker that we study is lacking is this idea of self-regulation and self-control or conscientiousness, um, where we discovered in Alex, by having him do these personality tests, that he was actually much higher than the average high sensation seeker on this conscientiousness trait. So we think that together with his, you know, clear sensation-seeking tendencies um, makes him a super sensation seeker that, yes, he seems crazy doing risky stuff to the rest of us, when in fact um, he's also incredibly um, 
self-controlled and self-disciplined. It's true. Alex Honnold is known for his meticulous preparation as much as he is for his climbing abilities. I actually spoke with him back in 2015 when he published a memoir called Alone on the Wall. And we kept coming back to this conscientiousness trait, though he didn't call it that. Yeah, well, so that's a big part of why I wrote the, wrote the book is because people watch like a YouTube video and they're like, oh, wow, you just walk up to a cliff and climb it without a rope. And I'm like, no, most of the routes I've climbed before and I've climbed them with partners and I've like talked to friends who have climbed them and we've talked about the individual sections of the route. Then I sort of decide how much preparation I need. But that can vary from, you know, spending multiple days on the wall by myself with ropes, like working on it, you know, to just climbing it once with a partner and being like, okay, I can do this and then just doing it. I mentioned earlier that Dr. Joseph was interested in Alex Honnold because she studies high sensation seekers who are prone to destructive behaviors like drug use or gambling. But Honnold has no, absolutely no interest in those things, which is probably due to this unusual mix of being a super high sensation seeker who is also super conscientious. And there's another personality trait that I think is worth mentioning here. Dr. Joseph found Honnold scores very low in neuroticism, which is linked to anxiety and excessive worrying. Honnold is so chill, his nickname in the climbing world is no big deal because nothing seems to faze him. So it takes a lot to trigger a fear response in his brain, and he rarely gets caught in an anxious cycle of negative thoughts, which means... When anxiety does strike, he takes note. If whenever I think about the route, it just turns into like, you know, unstoppable fear and like thoughts of death, then like clearly I'm not prepared for it and I should not go solo. And I mean, there are, you know, there have been routes over the years where like when I thought about it, it just filled me with dread and, you know, and then I just didn't solo it or spent longer um, preparing, you know, years later, revisited it or whatever. And he is not afraid to stop climbing if something feels off. You know, I mean, I've climbed halfway up some of the walls in Yosemite and been like, oh, today is not my day, and just climbed back down and, like, gone home. And, and that's kind of an important thing, I think, if, you're, if you plan to free solo very much. You know, there's no one to say when. Alex Honnold gets pretty tired of people asking him why he takes such wild risks. And he likes to point out there is a difference between risks and consequences. Risk is, like... The, the actual chance of falling off, you know, risk is the likelihood of something terrible happening. Consequence is just what happens, um, you, you know, how severe the consequences will be. And so with the free soloing, I mean, obviously the consequences are extremely high. I mean, for the most part, if I fall off, I will die. But, and, and you can tell that just by seeing a photo. I mean, if you look at any picture, you're like, wow, the consequences are super high. But people conflate that with risk. I mean, they see the photo and they're like, oh, wow, you're rolling the dice with your life. And you're like, well, that's not really the case. The likelihood of falling off has to do with my level of fitness, how secure the climbing is, you know, the style of climbing, the weather conditions, you know, my level of preparedness, all those kinds of things. And I mean, you can't judge any of that by seeing a photo. He also has a more seize the day mentality about life than a lot of people. That may be related to having lost his father to a heart attack at the age of 55. Alex was just 19. You know, at the time, it was just one of those crazy things that happens. And, you know, you're not like, oh, wow, I'm having a life-shaping experience right now. But now looking back on it, I mean, it probably has sort of changed my, my perception of risk a little. Because the thing is, anything you do in life has, has risk associated with it. I mean, that can mean sitting on a sofa your whole life. I mean, there's still risk of heart disease, cancer, whatever. I mean, there are lifestyle, you know, risks associated with that. And so it annoys me that you know, somebody who's completely sedentary can, can shake their finger at you like, oh, you shouldn't be taking risk. And you're like, well, you're taking a risk too, but it's just like not quite as obvious. It's not quite as overt. You know, but it's just a matter of like choosing the risks that you want to take and, and taking them open-eyed, deciding this is the way I want to lead my life and these are the things that are important to me and I'm willing to, to take risk for some things and not for others. What Alex Honnold is talking about there is a kind of rational calculation of risk and reward and priorities that psychologists used to think we all did anytime we made a choice. Yes, there's a long history in the evolution of that concept. Meet Paul Slovic. 
He's a professor at the University of Oregon, a pioneer in the psychology of risk and decision-making. When he started researching risk in the 1950s, the dominant theory was... It was like, you know, we had this little uh, computer in our, in our brain that would take into account the probability of something happening and then the seriousness of the consequences if it did happen. And, you know, all this was very, what we, we would call it, you know, analytical thinking. But the people in Slovak's experiments were not being very analytical at all. In fact, their risk decisions often made no sense. Like one study where Slovak asked people how concerned they were about being exposed to radiation. Sometimes people would say they were really worried. Sometimes they weren't. But it was the same radiation, just coming from different places. If we see the source of the radiation as beneficial, like in medical treatment, then we tend to uh, uh, perceive the risks as lower. And if we see the source of radiation as coming from some place that we don't feel we're getting benefit from, uh, you know, like a, that's important, like a nuclear power plant, we can get electricity other ways, then we tend to see the benefits as low and the risks as high. So in the mind, risk and benefit go in opposite direction. And we found that in, in research and we puzzled over that for a while. That is what we learned is that the reason that we judge risk and benefit for some activity to go in opposite direction was because we started by first consulting our feelings. You know, do I like this activity or not? If I like the activity, then I will judge it as high in benefit and low in risk. If I dislike it, I will judge it as low in benefit and high in risk. So the feelings come first. Those findings gave rise to Slovak's big contribution in the field of risk psychology that most of the time our decisions about risk are driven by our feelings. Most of us are not as good as Alex Honnold at assessing the actual risk of something without letting emotions muddy things up. This is built into us that our brain doesn't vet information that carries feelings. And as we don't question our, our feelings, we accept them as valid and truthful, and we, we respond that way. There is good reason for this. Our feelings are actually a very sophisticated mental compass that guides us uh, through our day. And uh, this was with us, you know, from er the, you know, the early forms of human beings. You know, when we lived in caves, we didn't have a science uh, to, uh, to do studies and to give us uh, data and statistics and analysis and cost-benefit or risk-benefit analysis. We did it through our, through our senses. We focus our attention on something. Uh, you know, information comes to us. Uh, it comes into the brain, and it creates feelings. If it's something that it feels good, we, we approach it. If it feels bad, we retreat. Uh, and this happens very, very quickly, often in a, a, a small fraction of a second. We can size up a sound or, or, or a sight of something, you know, a, a person coming at us. You know, do they look uh, friendly or hostile? It, it is easy. It doesn't take effort. Uh, it's fast. It feels right. And most of the time, it is right. But when it's wrong we end up making decisions that have no basis in fact or logic. We already heard how people view the same type of radiation as less risky if they feel like it gives them more benefit, which makes no logical sense. The same is true for harmful behaviors that also happen to be enjoyable. Our feelings are, are tuned or honed by our experience. So uh, if the experience is positive, uh, will tend to view the, the activity as, as positive. They've found this with smokers who consider smoking less risky to their health compared to people who don't smoke. On a more subtle level, I bet there's something you do or consume in your own life that carries the risk of negative consequences. But since you enjoy it, those positive feelings overpower the negative ones that might give you pause. Slovak says we're also prone to familiarity bias. That is, the things that have happened over and over again, create more positive feelings uh, than those that uh, are infrequent. Think about driving versus flying, for example. I drive every day, but I get on a plane maybe a couple of times a year. Now, if you just look at the lifetime odds, I'm 10 times more likely to die in a car crash than I am in a plane crash. But which one feels riskier? Flying 
because it's less familiar to me. And also because when plane crashes do happen, they get a ton of attention. Which brings us to another common mistake our brains make when assessing risk. We use our memory of past instances or our ability to imagine this happening as the cue for how likely it is to happen. There are things that make something easy to remember without it being more likely. Like if it's something that carries a lot of uh, emotional feeling, you know, some, something that's very uh, uh, dreadful and therefore it, it, it will stay in our memory doesn't necessarily mean it's more likely. A famous example of this is when the movie Jaws came out. You know, and people uh, were afraid to go into the, to the water, you know, because of uh, the risk from sharks. Shark. You You're gonna need a bigger boat. So it, was, it made those, the, that, those risks very available in our minds, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this was likely to happen. Statistically speaking, the average American is 3,000 times more likely to die from drowning than from a shark attack. But tell that to someone who's seen Jaws. It probably won't change their mind, because it also turns out feelings are terrible at math. So when we're judging risk based on instinct, Slovak says the results don't always add up. Because uh, if you say that something happens to 20 people out of 100, so you have an image of that happening. And if that's, this is something bad, that image conveys bad feelings, negative feelings that makes you worried about 20 out of 100 more than if you heard it happens to 20%. 20% doesn't convey any images of people getting injured or sick. Uh, that doesn't make any logical sense, but again, that's when we're just trusting our feelings. And your feelings are also shaped by your identity as a member of a culture or social group. Yes, this is all too real in today's world. When you look at the reaction to uh, to COVID, you know we have you know our, uh, our our tribes that we pay attention to. You know we are a de- Democrats see the threat of COVID. Uh, as much greater than than Republicans or liberals see it as much greater than conservatives. So again, this is taking the information that is uh, put forth by the public health people, the statistics or whatever, uh, and, and the media and social media, and and interpreting it in completely different ways that is you know consistent with the with our reference group. One of the most important types of information where our our feelings fail us is when that information is about something that is large in scale. No, it's about large numbers of of people in in distress, you know, starving or being uh, attacked by their government, as in genocide or other mass atrocities. Uh, Our feelings uh, don't don't grasp that reality. Our feelings are very uh, attuned to small numbers of people. If you see one person nearby who's suffering from something and you feel that you can help them, you, you know, people, most people will jump to that and, and, uh, and do their best to help this person, even at risk to their own lives. We see it all the time and someone jumps into a, a lake to rescue someone who's drowning, you know, even though it's at a risk to themselves. But if you see two people uh, at, at risk, you don't feel twice as concerned you may feel slightly more concerned, but not not twice. And if there are you know six people uh, in nearby in danger, and suddenly you see oh you know there's another person, uh, it's really seven. You probably won't feel any more concerned. Our, our feelings they quickly lose sensitivity. You may actually become less concerned. That is, as the numbers get bigger, you lose feeling, and they just become numbers. You know, and you and you may then turn your back on the problem uh, because it doesn't it doesn't convey any any emotional meaning for you. And we call this uh, psychic numbing, this in, insensitivity to uh, dangers that are are large in scope. And it's it's relevant not just to people, but also to uh, you know to non-human life, like you know uh, species that are uh, threatened by extinction. How do you overcome the numbing that happens when the numbers of people affected by something get larger and larger? One way to to, uh, address that is through uh, um, conveying information about the the individuals 
represented by the statistics. So give stories or photographs or names of, of people you know, affected by whatever it is you're concerned about rather than numbers. The numbers don't do it. So what does it take to slow down your thinking when you're making a risk assessment? If, if you want to make a more, I guess, reasoned, logical assessment and not let feelings kind of just guide it all, how do you do that? Well, the, the easiest way is when you're tempted to react instantly to some message or information that conveys very positive or negative feelings is to pause and to say, you know, wait a minute, uh, uh, let, me, let me spend a little more time thinking about this before I, before I act. In other cases, what it takes is to pay attention to experts who have done the slow thinking for us, not necessarily to say that we should blindly follow scientific uh, advice without thinking for about it ourselves, but we ought to respect uh, science and, and expertise. Slow thinking has to be about what matters to us, you know, what outcomes are important to try to achieve uh, or to avoid. And then also think about separately, try to separate that and think about how likely these consequences are. I mean, just sort of run through these in your, in your, in your mind, you know, what is important to you? Try to make your choice sensitive and consistent with your, with your values. This happens all the time with, uh, with COVID, where we've got a conflict between sending our kids to school and, and helping uh, parents go back to work and helping the economy but but posing a risk to the kids, and I think we would say that the uh, that the children are uh, their health is important. But uh, when push comes to shove, we've got to get back to work. I mean, these are there's no easy solution here, but at least you have to wrestle with that. If you if you think fast, you focus on one of these uh, these outcomes and not not the other, and you may leave out important considerations. Paul Slovic is an expert in the psychology of risk and decision-making. He's a professor at the University of Oregon, heads the Decision Research Institute there in Eugene. And his books include The Feeling of Risk and The Perception of Risk. Professor Slovic, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome, Julie. And thank you for taking time to think slowly with us today on Top of Mind. It is so easy to look at another person's risk assessment that seems completely illogical and chalk it up to that person being irrational or ignorant, when really none of us is immune to the faulty logic of feelings. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Keeley Gibson and me, with editing by Cleon Wall, Ciara Hewlett, and Ian Puente. We had sound design by the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. Our theme music was composed by Katie Pierce. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>